Ten years ago, on the 22nd of July 2011, Norwegians experienced the deadliest lone actor terrorist attack in Europe's history. Ten years later, the internet has enabled people to use online technologies for terrorist means, and individual attackers and their ideologies are widely spread and readily available among ever-growing online communities. Many are also the institutions and organizations working to counter online radicalization and hate. On today's episode, we discuss all of this with Khalifa Iler co-founder and director Bjorn Iler and Dr. Matthew Feldman, director of the Center for Analysis on Radical Right and professorial fellow at the University of York. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of our, our podcast, The Activism Academy. Today with us, we have Matthew Feldman and Bjorn Ehler. Would you like to introduce yourself? Go ahead, Matthew. You're the guestiest of the guests. You're very kind. I'm um, Professor Matthew Feldman, Emeritus Professor in the History of Modern Ideas and the Director of the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right, or CAR. Thank you very much for having me. And I'm Bjorn Ehler. I'm one of the co-founders of the Khalifa Ehler Institute, which is behind this podcast, among other projects, and um, I've been working on um, and trying to limit the scope of the far right for the last decade or so. Um, that's in, in, in short head. It would be really interesting to know more about the context uh, that we are in today, uh, especially talking about July 22nd. Um, the attack in Norway undertaken by Breivik. It would be great to hear more about what happened from you, Björn. Yeah, um, so I'm Norwegian by birth and, and, and uh, uh, was brought up in Norway and lived there until I was about 18 years old. And so um, I was a member of the Labour Youth Party for a couple of years there and, and uh, um, was still a member for a while after moving to the to the UK, and um, about a year after I moved to the UK, I went back to Norway on summer vacation and to um, the summer camp of the Labour Youth Party, um, which was attacked by Anders Bering Breivik on the 22nd of July um, 2011, and um, that attack stands as uh, kind of a watershed moment for. Norway and, and pretty much for the entire field of, of uh, um, working against the far right, I suppose, um, because Breivik's ideology, of course, was um, based in, uh, in the worldview of, of, of the general far right in many ways and, and uh, has also served as inspiration for uh, later far right extremist terrorists such as uh, Brendan Tarrant in, in New Zealand and Dylan Reef in the US and, and just to name a few, there's there's um, several, uh, many many others, and um, obviously um, it was a really unexpected event in many ways for Norway. Um, we hadn't really experienced any form of terrorism. Like th- there had been a few things happening here and there, but but obviously nothing at this scale happening in Norway ever. Um, and at the time, uh, I guess uh, everyone was kind of looking uh, in the Islamist direction as well as kind of a main suspect for for terrorism. And, and Norway's never really been 
too high on, on the Islamist agenda for, for attacks. And so it kind of came like uh, lightning from the blue sky in many ways. Also, it was in the middle of summer vacation. Um, all of Norway was pretty much um, abandoned for for people going off um, elsewhere on vacation. And so um, um, Oslo was, was fairly abandoned as well, which was great in many ways because um, one of the things that uh, Anders Bering did was blow up the, the government headquarters and thankfully <clears throat> most of the people working there were on vacation. The, the blast that shattered pretty much all of central Oslo um, only killed eight people. Um, unfortunately, Breivik was then able to uh, jump in his car and drive on to Ute Island where he uh, through a mass shooting, killed um, 69 people. Um, and that's where I was that day. Um, and and seeing this is kind of a, a day of, of significance, at least to people who, who study the far right. And Matthew, I, I was uh, going to throw it in, in your direction and, and ask you, how did it look from the outside? Obviously, I was kind of busy hiding from bullets that day and so um it's always interesting for me to 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 hear where uh where other people were and and and, and what they were doing i i guess i'd start by saying is that i worked on this mostly as a an academic and sometimes um expert witness for the cps at the time of the attacks by brevik and i'm almost embarrassed um you know to talk about it because all i have are uh, academic and intellectual reflections and to talk alongside someone like Bjorn Eiler, who has, you know, as as they kind of say in, in Europe, felt it on the skin, um, feels to me almost a gross injustice. But I have done um, a great deal of work on what in 2009 I called broadband terrorism. And I'd really just perhaps observe several things. Um, and again, I stress um, how how much of a paucity my intellectual observations have in comparison with the victims and the survivors of this awful event. We're only 10 days away from it being a decade on. But I would observe that many of the issues that were raised by the worst so-called lone wolf attack uh, in history have been addressed. We know that, for example, on the day of his attack, Anders Breivik sent his 1,500-plus-page manifesto to thousands of so-called patriots around the world, especially in Europe. He uploaded a 12-and-a-half-minute video that, of course, uh, essentially called for the execution of what he called Category A, B, and C traitors. Um, and that issue hasn't gone away, which is online radicalization and the ability to use online technology for terroristic means. Uh, in fact, that's how Bjorn and I have come to know each other through work together on the Global Internet Forum for Countering Terrorism's IAC body, which even to this day, 10 years on, is addressing many of these same issues. Likewise, secondly, I would suggest that the, there is a issue of individual attackers feeling in a kind of, uh, dare I say, social Darwinistic sense that they can, in Brevik's words, become immortal or saints or martyrs or any of this other nonsense by killing innocent people. And that that persists and, if anything, has grown since the attacks of the 22nd of July. And finally, of course, the issues of right-wing extremism, bigotry, 
the exclusion and persecution of minorities. And again, I think that anybody who's paying attention knows that that issue has gotten worse. You can probably hear from my accent that I'm an American. There was an insurrection that tried to overthrow the government only earlier this year. So I do feel that people need to wake up. We need to address this problem and we need to understand that the far right or fascism, as it was historically known and for some important reasons, is, is the radical right or the far right in a different way today, always has a signature that it approaches. And that signature is, in a sense, think of it as a bully in the, in the schoolyard. They always pick on the ethnic or religious or, or otherwise minority groups in the classic way of the bully. And I think that that is something that if we do care about all members of our society, we will stand with those who are most exposed against those who would do them harm. To me, that is the absolute signature of a civilization and of a society that's worth a damn. And at the risk of going on too much, I dedicated my professional life towards understanding and trying to counter that because I believe with Albert Camus that we're in a liberal society, words are stronger than bullets. And I will continue to believe that and will continue to push on those issues with friends like you and with those um, good people of goodwill that are listening. And in the regard of uh, countering and uh, also in regard of the narrative surrounding uh, attacks like this one, I have a question for the both of you, because the press is, has been addressing Breivik and Tarrant and many other as lone wolves, as you yourself call them, Matthew. But uh, what is your opinion on addressing them as, uh, as such? So I have two thoughts about it. First, uh, lone wolves is not a term that I prefer because it does tend to valorize them. It makes them sound like wolves and they're tough. When in fact, these people, if there's any definition of cowardice, it's attacking unsuspecting people who are most exposed in their society. So my personal term is self-activating terrorism. And the reason I use that term is twofold. One, it really is individuals who are directing or activating themselves. Yet at the same time, if we talk about lone actors, one of the problems of lone actors is that it can neglect the uh, oftentimes networks of support that these individuals rely upon online. Now, I think that there's a critical difference in something that is just oftentimes misunderstood about this phenomenon of the self-directed attacker, which is in the first instance, they do have a network of support, but they logistically go through something that's called the terrorist cycle by themselves. That is what makes them self-directed. The terrorist cycle has a number of different elements, which broadly include things like uh, weapons deployment, surveillance, the attack itself, and usually the propagandistic exploitation of that uh, usual, usually an outrage. So I believe that on the one hand, lone wolves are valorizing, and on the other, lone actors is misleading. So I prefer the term self-directed because I believe it gives us the best picture of the combination of a network of support, oftentimes online, but an individual going through the terrorist cycle alone. Matt, and, and in many ways, is my go-to guy for definitions of things. Uh, he's done uh, substantial works on, on uh, definitions and taxonomies um, surrounding uh, terroristic content online, etc. Um, and so, um, really listening to him here and, and, and appreciating uh, what you're saying, uh, Matt. Um, one of the things that, that I pick up on with, with uh, lone wolf terrorism is, is 
kind of just the word loan, which which doesn't make sense anymore. And I think that's kind of clear and evident to everyone, obviously. Like Breivik was a part of um, a larger, at least narrative and ideological network, if not a directly supportive network. And and we've seen this um, kind of time and time again, that where, um, uh, where um, individuals are still members of a community, a society within which they are seeking some sort of glory and glorification and, and Breivik to, to some extent uh, achieve that, obviously, within um, certain far-right far right circles, especially online. But also um, we, we see that with Tarrant, we see it with, with uh, Reef, etc., that they are also trying to put out kind of taught leadership, if you like, or, or absence of taught leadership uh, within this world through uh, a spread of manifestos. And I, I know that you've been, been studying these manifestos at length, Matt, and so um, it, it uh, also would be interesting to hear your take um, on how those manifestos kind of play together and, and whether these international connections often um, that are happening in online fora, et cetera, uh, to some extent would um, also constitute um, what, what would be deemed international terrorism because um, one thing we're seeing persistently in the prosecution of far-right extremists is obviously also that they are uh, prosecuted as domestic terrorists uh, or um, domestic executors of violence in, in other ways and through terrorism legislation also where there is an absence of recognition of um, acts of, of uh, domestic terrorism as um, you know a crime at all within the legal framework and so um, it's it's really p- putting putting a lot of countries in a pinch when they are experiencing things like this and, and don't have the right legal frameworks and right um, a frame of reference to uh, even through the legal system interpret what is happening and the international component of it. I guess I'd maybe observe, and as Bjorn has very kindly said about me, I'm a sort of incorrigible nerd. So I'm going to go back into history a little bit for a, a brief story that I think is very revealing about these self-directed attackers. And the template we have, now I, I need to stress that the self-directed attackers go back to the 19th century, and there were anarchist terrorists who were in, uh, involved in the assassination of the King of Italy and uh, the bombing of Wall Street in 1920. So this is um, a, a something that very much has history. But I think when most people think about it, their perfect template is a man called Ted Kaczynski, who was known as the Unabomber, and he sent mailed packages that killed uh, people and wounded many others in the United States. And this was somebody that was as alone as could possibly be. He lived in the outback of Montana, very rarely spoke to people. He was against kind of modern technology. And people forget, how was he caught? This person who had virtually no contact with the outside world. He was caught because, a long story short, a family member turned him in. And I think the takeaway of this is even the most alone loners still have connections because human beings are social animals. And that's why I think the idea of a lone actor is misleading, even if we are talking about individuals going through a terrorist cycle alone, and as Bjorn has rightly said, neglects the network of other people that learn from each other. This is another thing that is probably a banality to say from about human life, is that we learn from each other as social creatures. And that includes the use of awful, evil learning like manifestos. And so we've seen the way in which, for example, the 
the Brevik Manifesto called 2083 for a number of specific reasons we might touch upon. For example, it was meant to be the 200th anniversary, 200th anniversary of the death of Karl Marx. Uh, he was very much against cultural Marxism, but also someone who was an anti-Muslim bigot and noted that it was the 400th anniversary of the Battle of Vienna, which was the furthest that the Ottoman Empire had moved into Europe. There were important codes that were inscribed, not just into the title, but into the text itself. And those were built upon and, and directly referenced by subsequent terrorists who were using manifestos, using manifestos that often said, I agree with Anders Breivik, or I'm drawing upon Anders Breivik. So one of the things that my organization, through GIFCT and working with Bjorn and others, has been emphatic about is that having terrorist manifestos on a website is in some ways, not it's not a perfect uh, analogy, but is in some ways akin to child sexual exploitation. It's something that would have pointed out that a platform that it has no legitimate use for people of goodwill. These can only be used for harm. There are partners like Tech Against Terrorism that can provide access to them for researchers, so that's not really a legitimate reason. That there is no good reason for these to be online. They simply just inspire individuals and sometimes small cells to go out and kill innocent people. So it's what I would like to call low-hanging fruit, that the large internet platforms and some of the more fringe platforms should be encouraged as a first step in combating right-wing extremism to take down, because these manifestos are absolutely central to the way in which right-wing extremists understand what they are doing and understand how they can influence others. And for that reason, I believe very strongly that manifestos should really be the first port of call in taking down terroristic content. On, on right-wing extremism, I should, I should add that I tend to stay in my lane, and I'm sure there are lots of other forms of historical uh, and other ideological forms of extremism, but I really just focus on right-wing extremism. I'm sorry, I should have said that up front uh, as, a, as a way of making sure that I, uh, my, my little knowledge isn't stretched into something that it is not. Well, we'll try to stretch this as far as we, we can, <laughs> even within within that limit. Um, I think it's really interesting what you touched upon there with uh, the Unabomber and, and obviously him being a, a part of at least some sort of social network with his family who turned him in. Um, and obviously this is something we're seeing with um, a lot of other um, people who are, are either um, executing terrorist attacks or in the preparation phases in different ways or going down processes of radicalization, etc. Um, and one of the bases of, of uh, the work that uh, we at the Khalif Iyer Institute do for um, countering extremism, and countering um, uh, radicalization into violent extremism that may lead to terrorism as is the long form of saying that um, is like we're building on this uh, philosophy of, of all forms of violent extremism, whether it be Islamism or far-right extremism, um, being rooted in the same idea of, of um, the violent denial of diversity. Like, Breivik couldn't live with the fact that there were Muslims living in Norway and that there were people with different political opinions than him living in Norway who welcomed diversity in our society. Um, like, Islamists in ISIS, for instance, can't really live with the fact that um, people within their communities have other interpretations of, of Islam than them, um, and so they act out violently in order to and promote supremacy, but this also comes from um, a sense of victimhood, and so there's um, some sort of um, 
cognitive dissonance between the ideas of, of, of supremacy and the ideas of, of victimhood um, within pretty much all um, extremist environments that, that, that I've studied. Um, but of course, um, one of the things that we're seeing over and over again is that all extremists exist within communities that are diverse, right? And including the Unabomber who was uh, a loner, including Breivik who, who also in many ways have been described as a loner. Um, they all experienced the fact that the world was um, challenging them through diversity in, in um, ways that made them lash out violently. And so, um, one of the questions that that we keep asking ourselves and that I'm now asking you is really kind of how can we um, work to build um, more positive um, experiences really of, of diversity? How can we build positive social networks surrounding these people in kind of preventative efforts um, rather than um, letting them go down the, the rabbit holes of, of the negative networks through which uh, terroristic propaganda is being spread, through which they are inspired by other extremists and terrorists, um, etc. Well, I would start really by strongly associating myself with your remarks there, Bjorn, and I believe that, forgive me, I'm going to be, again, uh, revert to my nerdiness here and suggest that if there's one thing I think does define um, right-wing extremists today, it's the rejection of what I would call um, or the embrace of homogeneity, of sameness. Um, if there's anything right-wing extremists don't like, it's someone that sounds different or looks different or might be sexually different than what we might consider is, again, I don't like the term normal, but, but the majority view. And I think that if there's one thing that we can perhaps remind ourselves historically, but also culturally, that there are always differences in society, even in societies that may be, for example, historically have been overwhelmingly white European in their heritage. Um, there were wars of religion in Europe between Protestants and Catholics. There were ways in which we had to learn through plenty of pain and suffering that coexistence is the only way because everyone loses without it. And whether it was religion, whether it was even aspects of inter-ethnic rivalry, for example, um, just to date our talk now, there was some very ugly examples of racism in Britain following the, uh, excuse me, I should say in England specifically, following the loss of, of, of the team in the European um, Championship Finals uh, last night. And there's an idea that somehow before there were waves of migration after World War II, that Britain was homogenous. Going back 2,000 years, Britain had Romans and Celts and Picts. And, um, and that's simply just ethnicity rather than different types of pagan religions, for example. So this idea that in the past or in a different type of reality, there was a homogeneity, a sameness that we could embrace, it's simply false. There are different types. I think we have to be realistic about this. There are different types of difference today. So, for example, sexual difference is something that is celebrated and is understood in a way that we didn't know 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago. But is that really a cause because it's something that is comparatively new to our society? And here I am a realist. I think that it's important to talk about this, that it is different than it was 100 years ago. But is that really something to be frightened of? Why? Why is that something that would not just cause fear, but cause hatred? And I think that we need to have serious conversations about that in a way that pierces the myths of homogeneity, which is ultimately what so much right-wing extremism rests upon. 
So why are those conversations not happening? I think one issue with right-wing extremism in, and again, I want to stress, you know, my, my work focuses on North America and Europe. I absolutely accept that right-wing extremism except, uh, exists in, in India, it exists in Brazil, but I, just for the purpose of our conversation, limit my uh, uh, comments to Europe. In white majority countries, right-wing extremism sits next to, it abuts the mainstream in a way that jihadi Islamist extremism and other forms of extremism do not. And once we look again, forgive me for, for switching a little bit back to the United States, when we look at the, the people who are involved in the insurrection, some of them very clearly right-wing extremists like the Proud Boys or the Three Percenters or the Oath Keepers, and you look at the relationship those people have, it is with some mainstream politicians and figures. And I believe that that creates serious problems, and I don't think that we should duck those problems, serious problems for where you draw the line on what is a fringe, controversial opinion and what is extremism. Uh, and that line is invariably going to shift because it's not simply a, a single answer that is true for all time. But I think that we also have to accept that this, if we wish to call it, I, I agree with Professor Miller Idris um, at, at Washington University, that there is a mainstreaming that is going on in a way that is different than other challenges of extremism. And I give you just one example um, it was very difficult for people to, as it were, stumble across jihadi Islamist extremist material, for example, online. One, oftentimes that material, not always, of course, oftentimes that material was in Arabic and people of white European heritage wouldn't have that language. But even the, the, the way in which those texts were communicated was not on mainstream sites, whereas what we see again and again and again is that a, there's a patina of difference, a cigarette paper of difference between what is considered a fringe opinion and an extremist opinion. And I don't know if there's easy answers to that, but I do know that our societies need to reckon with it directly and we need to do it urgently. I pick up on what you were saying about the mainstream. Uh, many researchers have been noticing that over the past five to ten years, the far-right ideology and the very harmful and violent uh, words that come with it have become more in mainstream. They have been more present in the media. They are more present in the words of politicians. And, of course, they are also more present, uh, more present in the day-to-day -day conversation of normal people. So what do you think about this trend? And do you think there is something that we can do as a researcher, as a also normal people that we can do every day to help and prevent all of this. So here I perhaps dissent from what is oftentimes a, 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 a view that you've described that is held by most people. I think we also need to understand and, and, and be realistic about it, that things like multicultural acceptance in Europe is indeed increasing. So if we go back 20 years ago, for example, the acceptance of gay relationships or of, of, of mixed race relationships was much lower than it is today. So we're we're looking at it uh, as our societies, and again, I'm I'm limiting myself to North America and Europe, but I hope that the comments are are relevant beyond that. Is that there is greater tolerance socially over a longer durée towards what we might call different forms of of, of difference and of of lifestyle and identity? Yet it is also true. So these two things are simultaneously true. 
that there is a greater acceptance, but also bucking that trend is a mainstreaming of certain discourses. And the one that I have done a lot of research on and am increasingly concerned about is anti-Muslim prejudice. And again, I think that we need to be realistic and say that it was stoked by very real fears of terrorism, and that led to a bigoted conflation of 1.5 billion Muslims, one of the great religions in the world, and the acts of some who have appropriated and perverted that faith for political ends. So again, I really do think that there we shouldn't just say there was absolutely no reason for this. It came out of the blue, because I think that that is being historically mistaken. But that is to say we can give reasons for this. It's not the same thing as justifying this. And in the same way, I think we can say that we are moving towards greater tolerance as societies, but that there is, in a sense, as we move towards this, and there will be new challenges that come up, there is a drag in the water. There is an oar that slows our societies down. And much of it, not only, but much of it is from this defense of a mythical, nostalgic, false homogeneity. I also want to point at something both horrible and fascinating, and that has been really incapacitating for me, is to face people who are so insidiously bigoted that they hide behind humor and memes. And as you also mentioned in one of your inter interviews, the, the, the perversion of this Internet culture, Pippi the Frog, and these things that used to bring joy to people. And instead of talking about the issues, I am now... Before I try to talk about the issues, I'm now obligated to establish that I'm not a sensitive so snowflake, that I'm not the one who's, who's, I just have to explain myself that I care that this is really harmful and the discussion doesn't really start. So it would be really interesting to know from a researcher and expert like you on what lies be beyond this, how to deal with it, how you dealt with this in your research and so on. For me, I think it's very, very important, uh, much as I am not a fan of these right-wing extremists, but to listen to them and to take what they say themselves seriously. Okay, And I think that there is a job for certain people, as it were, to get their hands dirty by going into the muck. And when we listen to some of these extremists, they're very clear on the point of what they call lulls or a, a kind of ironic humor. Although, uh, Hella, as you point out, it's not funny at all when you're talking about racial slurs or, you know, attacking someone based on their identity is not funny at all. But I think that they are very clear and unanimous nearly on the use of uh, I'm going to use the word humor or satire, even though that's not the right word, which is uh, twofold. One, um, people don't respond, they, the extremists themselves realize that people didn't respond to someone shouting and screaming and sort of spitting onto their screen. That turns people off. So something that is, uh, uh, that is intended as a bit more jocular or mirthful, even if that's not what um, uh, so-called normies would see it, is an important strategy for them. Secondly, and perhaps just as importantly, especially when some of these right-wing extremists are pushed into a corner or they're forced to explain themselves or they're doxxed or uh, something untoward happens, they still have the argument that I was just kidding. And I think that argument is more powerful uh, than we oftentimes recognize, even if we know that the statement itself is is avowedly racist or sexist or homophobic or whatever it is, the ability that someone says, I didn't really mean it. Um, this is being taken out of context. I was just in a um, an off-color channel. 
And again, I would associate myself with Hella that this is not a question of shrinking violets who are, you know, always watching their pronouns. These are, um, you know, forms of hate speech. And those forms of hate speech um, go much further, A, when they're not shouted and screamed and bellowed, but done in uh, what is intended to be a sort of satirical or ironic format. But also it gives a patina, again, a kind of sheen of deniability. And I think that that has been hugely important to as a sort of, as it were, get out of jail free card. And those two reasons are repeatedly cited by extremists themselves for why they use that register rather than our, our almost stereotypical pictures of Hitler ranting in front of hundreds of thousands of people. That was then and this is now. We live in a, if you will, postmodern age or slightly satirical age where statements of heartfelt seriousness sound a bit mawkish, um, let alone uh, um, you know, people screaming at the top of their lungs. In the 21st century, right-wing extremists properly understood that that was no way to gain followers. And so they've come up with a new strategy that they call lulls, and it's been remarkably successful. One of the things that um, we've been observing, like while what you're saying is largely true, that the acceptance for diversity has increased. Um, we're seeing countries kind of regress from that, and we're seeing vast portions of the population as well regress from that, right? We we saw um, the, the last election in, in the U.S., for instance, could be indicative of um, a large swath of the population voting for um, an agenda that, that is known to be fairly aligned with uh, white supremacy, with, with uh, far-right extremism. And we're seeing um, things like the, the, the government in, in uh, the country of Georgia, for instance, um, largely supporting protesters um, attacking the LGBTQI movement. We're seeing um, Poland and and Hungary and other countries in Europe kind of regressing out of uh, both the um, European community um, of uh, the European respect for rule of law in many ways from a very fascist perspective that also um, is discriminatory against women and and, um, uh, and pulling back from um, the women's rights agenda as well as um, uh, declaring LGBTQI uh, plus free zones across countries, etc. And so um, th- there's this push and pull, but we're also seeing that a lot of along with the meme culture is um, this aspect of uh, essentially neo-Nazis putting on suits and going into parliaments and, and um, there's coalitions within the European Parliament at the European level now as well as in, in national parliaments around the entire continent as well as around the world um, that are holding um, what I would define as kind of broad spectrum white supremacist agendas that that logically go into um, anti-LGBTQI um, um, elements as well as anti-feminist uh, elements, etc. Um, essentially are about the preservation in many ways of the white race as, as uh, the 14 words of uh, the white supremacists uh, follow. Um, it, it's a similar logic behind a lot of that, as well as their stances on migration and on minorities within their own countries. And so, um, I'm kind of wondering what your perspective here is on the relationship between the Nazis in suits versus the Nazis with frogs on the internet, um, and and how they play off each other, and what the real phenomenon 
is, but also to what extent um, it actually empowers and emboldens um, individual terrorists like uh, Breivik and Tarrant and also Munshaus in, in Norway, etc. I guess I would start again, forgive me, with a, a banal observation that leadership matters. And I think that leadership matters not just if you're looking at the difference between, let's say, uh, Biden and Donald Trump is a very obvious one. But, Bjorn, you've mentioned Hungary and you've mentioned Poland, um, where I think that we can see that leadership matters both in helping people to potentially articulate latent hatreds and bigotry. Certainly, I think that that can be the case of, of, of poor leadership or sometimes called right wing populist leadership. But I think it can go further than that, and it can actually create some of these hatreds and people who say, oh, I didn't realize, um, for example, that Jews secretly run the world in, in terms of an anti-Semitic. I didn't I wasn't turned on to this until I watched a national respected leader saying these things on TV, for example. Um, in respect to Bjorn's very important point about let's call them fascists in suits, I would encourage listeners to go back to the important um, essay of 1995 by Umberto Eco called Ur-Fascism. Many people remember it, but forget its context. He wrote um, for the New York Review of Books this very famous essay in 1994, published in 1995, very specifically about the Haider phenomenon in Austria, the FPO, and also the so-called post-fascist party in Italy, uh, that became known as the MSI, uh, or uh, was known as the MSI and became the Alianza Nationale. Arguably, this is precisely the moment after what Dan Stone calls the end of the anti-fascist consensus during the Cold War that had broken down, that, for again, I'm simplifying hugely, that had marginalized right-wing extremists and allowed them to come back after the Cold War in the mid-1990s as extremists who had traded in their jackboots for their suits, that had traded in obvious racial slurs, for example, for more euphemized language. And one of the things that uh, I have worked on in the past is this distinction between what's sometimes called esoteric and esoteric, but I think an easier way for uh, viewers to, to, to understand this is that there is a front stage rhetoric and there is a backstage rhetoric. And the backstage rhetoric is intended for the hardcore. It is intended for people who want to be um, doing the racist things online or be much more overt about their right-wing extremism and sometimes their neo-Nazism. And that is umbilically connected to the more euphemized language of the front stage, which is intended for a much more mass audience construction uh, uh, consumption. So that you have... Uh, the appeal to your real activist, the hardcore at the backstage, but you also are nodding and winking to them and say, I don't really mean it when I'm using much more euphemized language in the front stage. And I've again used the example of anti-Semitism before, and I think that one of the oldest tricks in the book, or at the very least in the modern book, is I'm going to say Jews for the backstage audience who know that I'm actually talking about the Zionist-occupied government or something like that. But I'm going to talk about Soros and Zionism and other euphemisms uh, for a public audience because I wouldn't be able to say that overtly without using a synonym or a euphemism. And I believe that that is well understood by party political right-wing extremists who, of course, need votes to get elected but also don't want to alienate their hardcore base. So this is something that is now in its third decade at least, 
Um, arguably, we could go back to Belgium in 1989, but I don't want to get overly specific and boring. But it is um, something that has been tried, tested, and shown to be successful. And we can go back to the symbology of, of Goebbels and, and the Hitler regime if you if you want to, and a lot of that carries on still, obviously, as well. I think one of the really interesting things here is the uh, memes, uh, not necessarily in the internet sense, but in the more colloquial communication sense and the codes that exist among uh, the far right and, and the Nazis. And you refer to it um, when we were talking about manifestos a little bit earlier as well, and these um, elements that make up um, a larger mythology um, within the far right that consists both of the language used by the fascists in suits, used by um, the terrorists who are releasing their manifestos, and used by the uh, edge lodge of, of the internet. Um, and um, there's kind of a, a, a language evolving there and a language um, building there that is largely um, not um, possible to interpret for the con- general outsider audience, but becomes um, more of a more of a in joke than anything else, and, and and it becomes a community surrounding those, and and that's where um, a lot of people um, are kind of finding their sense of belonging, their sense of value, etc. That um, also are drivers in, in radicalization into um, um, the, the further edges of this, which uh, results in terrorism. And so um, I was wondering um, kind of what your take are on all these codes. I know there are you know, dictionaries of um, of um, of um, uh, symbols, etc. out there, but um, obviously the, the landscape is kind of evolving faster than the research community is, is able to keep up and, and uh, that is something that seems problematic to, to our research community, right? And so uh, how are you dealing with those challenges? Um, so Carr has put together a number of, as it were, guidebooks, but I think in responding to what you're saying, Bjorn, it's so important that these guidebooks aren't static, right? But that they are continually edited and updated and they capture and reflect this. And I'll give you an example. Five years ago, uh, a sign, the so-called OK sign, was had no other real meaning besides saying, yes, that's OK, that's fine. And again, without going into the specifics that was appropriated by right-wing extremists, oftentimes as a sort of lulls or the ironic, uh, we're trolling, and now would have to be included as a hate sign, although with a huge caveat, that it is used as a hate sign in context, that there are some contexts in which it is intended as a hate sign, but for the vast majority of people, it still means what it always did. Now that, as we would call it in, in, in amongst my fellow nerds, that semiotic shift, the shift in the meaning of those terms, is created by right-wing extremists themselves. And so, for example, 40 years ago, the 14 words didn't exist until a neo-Nazi named David Lane read Mein Kampf, found the eighth chapter, and was able to summarize what he believed was the core of Mein Kampf into 14 words. And that has become now an infamous sign that in some places is banned in the same way that, for example, the swastika is banned. And because the swastika, for example, in uh, Germany is banned, they've had to look for new symbols. 
and those new symbols in turn are banned, whether it's the wolf's angle or the black sun. This isn't something, again, I think, like our societies themselves, that is static and unchangeable. And that remains the kind of job for a researcher, because as one scholar says, it's not simply a game of or a question of remembering. It's a question of understanding. It is not simply a game of saying this is a combination that was used so and so many years ago, because society isn't like that, and people aren't like that. Things change and evolve and move on, and so must we. Yeah, we we can see uh, on one side, of course, an evolution and a modernization. But on a on an historical perspective, we could say that uh, considering the pandemic and the use of fake news, we can see some similarities between the times we are living right now and the times that led up to fascism taking over Italy, for example, using uh, fake news, using propaganda. Do do you think that uh, there is a potential or that we should be looking out for fake news further proliferating and endangering democracies around Europe? Uh, I do. And I think that fake news or propaganda is one of the key aspects of fascism, although unlike some scholars, I, I quick to point out that fascism doesn't have a monopoly or right wing extremism doesn't have a monopoly on propaganda and fake news. It's been used and employed by anyone of a range of theocratic left wing. You know, it's it's a tool just like anything else, just like terrorism is a tool. So, yes, it has been appropriated. But I would absolutely agree with what you said, Miriam. And in fact, um, cards on the table, I'm trying to write a global history of fascism that is called Full Circle. And so it would start with Mussolini's movement 100 years ago, and it would look at some of the similarities today. And to just very briefly enumerate some of those that I think is absolutely right, people forget how serious the pandemic was in Europe 100 years ago, the so-called Spanish influenza that killed literally by, in some estimations, more than 50 million people around the world. Um, and that was a huge element uh, of uncertainty and led to, in part, political polarization, which we're also seeing today. People also forget that the first thing Mussolini did after founding his fascist in March, in April, he, he went and attacked the socialist press called Avante. Some of that was personal because he had previously been an editor of Avante, but because information is power. I mean, again, I know that that's a very obvious thing to say, but there are some similarities that are concerning. There is one difference, though, and I think that this difference does bear noting. The violence and bloodshed of World War One in European societies entrenched that political polarization and made political violence much more commonplace than it had ever been before between the wars um, and not in uh, the context of a Napoleonic War or World War One itself. And that legitimation of political violence was something that our societies worked very hard, especially in liberal democracies, to stigmatize and move away. And I do think that we shouldn't just compare as horrible as even something like the 6th of January, which led to massive injuries and loss of life, that we shouldn't compare that to the kind of um, seemingly civilization-rending political violence and warfare that we saw in, in, for example, 1914 to about 1921. That really was the rise of paramilitary movements that traded in death and that valorized political violence in a way that isn't just identical. So I think that there's important lessons to be learned, especially around political polar, polarization, um, the pandemic, 
the role of elites and the way in which elites can be seduced by extremism, those are hugely important lessons. But I'm not yet ready to turn around and say we're simply just facing a replay of what we saw right after World War One, because I think actually that's historically glib and mistaken. So building on that and, and, and of your, on your team of, of uh, going full circle, um, I think one of the questions that a lot of people are, are, are stuck with right now is, um, especially back home in Norway, is also, um, and what have we learned in the last 10 years? Where was uh, far-right extremism 10 years ago versus where it is now? Uh, from my perspective, it looks like things have kind of gone Downhill over the last decade or so, we, we see a higher frequency of, of, of far-right inspired terrorist attacks and other forms of attacks these days um, than what we have for some time. We've also um, have both seen uh, the reactions to um, the wave of migration in the 2014, 2015-16 uh, uh, era. We've seen um, kind of the backlash of um, the 2008-ish financial crisis play out in, in political populism in, in the early years of the decade as well as kind of prolonging into now. And now we find ourselves here in the midst of uh, the reopenings, hopefully from um, from a global pandemic that isn't entirely dissimilar to uh, the Spanish flu. And so I'm um, wondering both what your take is on, on the last decade, but also um, whether we have a bit of a weather forecast for the next next decade and, and what that will look like and, and what in particular should be our focus areas uh, for trying to prevent it going as terribly as the 1920s and 1930s um, went uh, with regards to fascism. So maybe I would, would conclude with a positive and a negative. I completely agree with your analysis, Bjorn, that we look to be in a worse position from violent extremism right-wing extremism. I do point out that, you know, the party political forms of the populist radical right, again, if we go back to the mid-1990s, was already breaking through then and perhaps before. So in one sense, we are seeing um, greater political violence utilized by, in particular, self-directed but sometimes small cell groups that are making use of cutting-edge technology. Everything from 3D printers right through to fringe um, internet platforms and much else besides. And if we remember, that awful man, Anders Breivik, said that when I started my terrorism research phase, the first thing I did is spend 200 hours Googling. This existed 10 years ago, and I don't believe that it has gotten much better in the 10 years since. The one thing that has changed, and I'm rather older than I think the three of you youthful people on this call, I've been talking about this for 20 years, and oftentimes telling people this is, I, for example, I published... I don't like talking about my work, but I, I think it's important to say I published the term broadband terrorism in 2009. So that was uh, before Anders Breivik. It was based on some um, um, empirical work that I had done saying that you no longer need um, so-called cable street. You can use broadband or you can use Internet cables. And that was already 12 years ago. And no one cared. No one wanted to talk about it. I was kind of seen as the weird guy who's like, no, we have the threat of jihadi Islamism, and that's all that there is, and we don't need you talking about this. Um, thank you very much. And I had some very uncomfortable conversations in the years even after Breivik's attacks, saying, 
all of the elements are there for this problem to get worse. Okay, so that's the negative side. But I do think there are some guarded reasons for optimism, and that is simply that people are not necessarily listening to me or to Bjorn, but are talking about this as a live issue. And so, for example, to take the country where I reside in the UK, uh, when the so-called Prevents uh, uh, Counter-Extremism and Terrorism Project was first launched, it was only targeting uh, um, uh, people who were seen to be radicalized from the Muslim faith. Again, what we would now call the perversion of the Muslim faith, Islamism. It is now, um, we have as many or more people from right-wing extremist backgrounds who are being put on to prevent or its uh, um, kind of a partner program called Channel. And I think that has to be seen as a welcome change, not just where we are taking extremism in the round, and I hope as citizens of goodwill, rejecting it from any quarter that it comes from, irrespective of where it comes from, irrespective of what stupid justifications it comes to denial of human rights for individuals, as I said at the start of our talk, usually those people who are the most vulnerable in our societies. But there is a greater appreciation, just when we talk about right-wing extremism, that it does pose a threat, that it can radicalize people, especially young people, and that it can lead to political violence. A dozen years ago, or, or even more, when I was starting this work in the late 1990s and early 20th century, uh, 21st century, excuse me, those were not arguments that people would accept. And now we're all kind of nodding along going, yeah, it's obvious. And I, you know, I, I, I don't claim any great foresight. All of the elements were there. If we go back to David Copeland's self-directed attacks in 1999, the elements were and continue to be there. But I do have some guarded optimism that our willingness as societies and through our elites, whether they're in the newspapers and in press or in politics, to tackle them. Even from um, um, conservatives and, and some people on the fringe saying, we absolutely reject, and I'll give you one example, um, who I think was somebody who absolutely radicalized Anders Breivik, was uh, Peter Anders Jensen, called Fjordman, said, I absolutely reject that political violence once he was shown the bodies of young people who were killed because of his words. And I do think that there is some hope, because I still believe this, both as a person of faith and through my work, that people can find redemption. I don't believe that a particular example works, but I believe that our societies can address this through understanding, through knowledge, and through greater empathy. Because if I didn't believe that, I don't believe that I could do this work. And I still do believe that our societies can understand and tackle problems, because again, one of the other things that human beings are, in addition to social creatures, is problem solvers. And even if oftentimes... It can feel like a pretty despairing subject to work on and certainly a hateful, ugly, you know, depressing one. There are moments where you turn around and say uh, society can come, come together across whatever divisions may be politically or in terms of people's identity or backgrounds. And we can stand shoulder to shoulder and say that every human being has the right to flourish. Anybody that's going to deny that in the name of some BS sameness myth well, they can go over there and play with themselves. You ended that on a very beautiful note. Um, and as you said, our weapon is understanding. Our swords are words. And to leave our listeners with uh, some of your intriguing recommendations for books and films to read would be a great addition to this episode. So do you want to suggest something? 
Well, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't suggest going to www.radicalrightanalysis.com, which I'm proud to say is the leading resource in the world. Our bibliography uh, is Anglophone and has now just breached 400,000 words. That's the bibliography alone. There are dozens of podcasts. We've published nearly 1,000 insight blogs, which are similar to comment pieces, longer form reports. I mean, literally, if you want it on right-wing extremists, it's there. And one of the things that we are absolutely proud of um, and unapologetic for on right-wing extremism uh, in terms of our studies is that we are a one-stop resource, and we intend it to be specialists like myself and more than fourscore fellows writing accessibly for the public for material that is free at the point of use to download, uh, to use on Creative Commons, and to make use of themselves. We believe that there wasn't a space for this. A number of academics who are doing great work all too often can talk to themselves, and a number of people who, let's say, um, dip their toe in the water as news anchors or as comment pieces don't do deep enough work. And so we believe that we would come into that space and talk about right-wing extremism globally, past and present, in an accessible way for specialists who are sharing their knowledge for the general public. And I really hope that the proof is in the pudding for people who do want to go see the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right. Go try to find the most esoteric, weird subject on right-wing extremism, and I dare you, you will find it. I can't wait to go and discover that. Thank you so much, Matthew Feldman. Your words have really touched me, and I feel like I've learned a lot, and I hope our listeners will also visit the website that you suggested and check out all the work that you've been doing. Thank you so much for being here. It's my honor, Hella. Thank you very much to you and to Miriam and to Bjorn for hosting me. Thank you, Matt. Bjorn, from you, a recommendation from a film for our listeners? Uh, so um, I actually thought I would bring... Uh, a point up that that Matt made earlier about uh, the work of, of Cynthia Miller Idris, who's um, a friend of us both, I, I believe. Um, and in 2017, she wrote a book uh, or a published book. Uh, she wrote it before that. Uh, called uh, "The Extreme Gone Mainstream," which covers a lot of uh, the topics that we've been uh, discussing today in, in more depth. So, so that's my book recommendation. When it comes to film recommendations, uh, I'm going to pull a cheeky one. And sort of within the field of, of uh, countering the far right, and actually suggest uh, American History X, which was one of the kind of fundamental films that that I watched in the early 2000s before I uh, got heavily involved in this work, but still worked uh, with anti-racism in different ways. And it shows um, some of the journey that some of the former extremists that I've been working with have been on um, in coming back out of extremist movements as well. And so it highlights the point that uh, Matt was making uh, towards the end here, that, that change is possible, that redemption is possible, um, that um, some of the worst of the worst um, aren't doomed to forever be terrible people, but the, that there are ways back out of extremism as well. Thanks. And I, I just maybe a final comment to say that I really agree with with Bjorn. If you believe that people can't be redeemed, even the worst people that can't be redeemed, I don't believe that you can do this work because I don't believe that you can see a better future for those people. You just would have to send them away or lock them up or turn around and use much the same language and description as they use for us. 
So I have to believe that redemption, whether we use it in a religious sense or in a more familiar secular sense, has to be the aim, even if that's not to say that we are naive, we'll just let anyone back to the fold, because some people do pretend. Um, that's not to leave our wits about us, but I would absolutely associate myself with that and say a great deal of what the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right is doing now is working on counter-speech, forms of counter-extremism, and in fact, working with former extremists. And they don't always say the kinds of things, if I come back to Hella's great point, that we may find terribly comfortable, but they have to meet the extremists where they are. And those people, too, sometimes have to put their hands into the, the mud and, and the dirt um, because that is one way of bringing people back to, a, a, you know, a community that understands human diversity and embraces human flourishing. And I will always associate myself with them unapologetically, just like I'm proud to associate myself with all of you. Thanks for listening. We hope that this episode helped you in gaining insight and understanding the dangers and entrappings of right-wing extremism even more. We need to remain vigilant and look out for each other. Check out RadicalRightAnalysis.com, which Professor Feldman suggested, to educate yourself and others more, or head over to our social media channels and tell us what you think. Our next episode is about the LGBTQ struggle in Tunisia. See you then!